Good to be with you this morning. As I said earlier, Pastor Kenny and Karen are not with us today. They went to New York State to uh, visit with Karen's mother, and some things have changed in her life recently, and so they're there to be with her and uh, help in some of that. But we are going to be together today um, looking at a very unusual story. Uh, Normally, pastor would come up and begin with some sort of joke or personal anecdote, some little illustration to introduce the idea of the sermon today. I'm not going to be doing any of that because the story itself is the anecdote and the illustration. And so we're going to be looking at that together in just a few moments. But first of all, let me say a, a quick thank you. We've had a lot of people this morning that have had to step up and do some things last minute and make some changes and cover for people. It is that time of year whenever there are lots of sickness and different bugs and things going around. Um, I ask you to bear with my voice this morning. I think we'll be able to get through this. We made it through first service, but uh, had to have Justin and Megan cover high school, Sunday school this morning. We just kind of combined all the kids in there together so that I didn't have to speak. Uh, it was hard sitting down here at the front this morning and not sing, and I caught myself even sometimes like, okay, quit humming, quit humming, because I was trying to do that, just trying to save some voice. Um, but I blame Neil. Um, Neil was calling me last night to inform me that he has the stomach bug and he was going to have to ask Adam and Stan to step up and lead praise team this morning and tell me his plan for that. He said he may or may not be here, but it was looking like he wouldn't be able to make it. But uh, before he ever said anything, he, I picked up the phone and said, hello. He said, what's, what's wrong? Are you okay? I was like, well, as far as I know, have you heard something that I haven't heard? Is something getting ready to happen? He said, well, you sound sick. I said, I'm fine as far as I know. Well, then this morning I woke up and Um, I'm sounding a little bit better now even than what I did before. But uh, do ask that you pray for me as we try to get through this. But all that to say, just thank you. Several people had to step up today and make some changes. The uh, praise team that was on stage for this service, uh, half of them were different this morning even as different people were covering different spots and different things. So thank you for being a church that will step up and fill in and even in the last minute uh, be able to do what God has called you to do and ask you to step up and do. But this morning we are going to be uh, getting into a rather unusual story. You'll notice that the study guide that were insert that was in your bulletin there uh, is a little bit different uh, than what you're used to seeing. Normally you're used to seeing an outline that follows through right with the sermon filling in the blanks. Think of this more as your days in middle school and high school whenever you were asked to do more of a critical book review or a uh, movie review. Uh, that's the way this is broken down. You'll see at the top, you're going to see the cast of characters that we'll be looking at in the story today. They won't all be introduced all at the same point. So as we introduce a character or we start talking about the characteristics of a certain person or character that we're talking about today, feel free to jump back in and make those notes up there where appropriate. Then you'll see the section called the story. There's Act 1, Act 2, and at the bottom of the back page, Act 3. And so we'll be talking about those, obviously, in order. But some of the things that we're going to be pointing out are going to uh, tie in in different spots. So you may want to make some notes in different places there about those. And then at the top of the back page, you'll notice this idea of director's cut. I don't know about you, but um, I like movies. I like good movies. And every once in a while, you know, they'll release a special anniversary edition or a deluxe edition of a movie as it comes out. And I'm one of these weird people. I actually like to collect things and have them on hand. I know I live in a day of digital streaming and digital media where nobody owns a CD or nobody owns a DVD anymore, right? You just pay to own it and watch it whenever you want on your phone or wherever else. I like to have those. I've still got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of CDs at the house, and when there's a good one that's out there, I still like to buy it and have that copy. There's something about that. But every once in a while, you know, whenever they release these movies, they'll do a director's cut 
with that. And there's special commentary by the director that you can go in and watch throughout the movie. You can turn it on during, or you can watch it all later on the bonus DVD about you know, creative decisions they made or ways that they worked with the story or the way they had to solve different problems in the storytelling or something that they were going to do visually. It's just extra little information that kind of gives you sometimes some background as to what's going on and significance to some things that you see visually in movies sometimes that you didn't always catch before. Well, God, as we're going through this story today, breaks in. And he gives us a rather lengthy director's commentary on some of the things that are going on, some of the things that are getting ready to happen, and really kind of shows us his heart in this story and where he's headed and what he's hoping to accomplish with this story, the, the effect that he hopes that will have. And so we're going to be diving into that today as we look at this story together. But it's the story of a prophet of God that's unlike any other story where we see one of God's prophets deliver a message. This, this story is not of a prophet that confronts a king in a bold stance and uh, decries his sin and the sin of a nation. It's, it's not the story of a prophet who goes out into the public square and begins crying out the truth of God and calling people to repentance. This is a story of a prophet that God calls to live his entire life as an illustrated sermon. It's a prophet who is going to be mocked and ridiculed, a prophet who's going to face shame and embarrassment because of the things that God asked him to do. It's a prophet whose family is going to be in turmoil and chaos throughout most of his life as God begins to make a point and call Israel back to himself through this prophet. It's a story that God is going to tell through this prophet's life of his relationship with Israel. And as we look at God's history of his relationship and the way this relationship goes and what God's desired end for Israel is, we're going to see the heartbeat of God. And as we look at that heartbeat of God in this story, we're going to see the ways that we should be relating to God ourselves and the way that we should be living in relationship with him. So while there is absolutely some application there to the state of Israel and where they are now and what lies in their future that's going to tie in a little bit with what Pastor Kenny's been covering so far in the book of Revelation, we're going to see a lot of application for our lives and things that we need to be aware of and looking out for as we live in relationship with God today. So turn with me as we get started to the book of Hosea. We'll be in Hosea chapter 1. As we uh, look at this title we've, or this sermon we've entitled, Unfaithful, A Love Story. Sounds like a paradox, and it is. But that's exactly what this story is. When we think of true love, unfaithfulness is not what we think of. And yet through this story of incredible unfaithfulness, we're going to see a genuine love that goes beyond anything that we have ever encountered before. Anything that we would even think is possible for us to do and demonstrate in our own lives. We begin in Hosea chapter 1, and we're going to start together in verse 2 here in a moment, because verse 1 really isn't so much story. It gives us the introduction to one of our characters, Hosea. Uh, There is nothing special about him. He's not from a noble family. He wasn't the friend of a king like some prophets that we've seen. He, He wasn't from a wealthy family. He wasn't from a very disparaged family. He didn't have a traumatic childhood or anything like that. He was simply an Israelite who was called by God to live out this message. 
There is no significance to his father, the town that he came from. That's not even mentioned where exactly it is that he's from. But we do know that he is living in one of the northern tribes of Israel. That's where he is from. At this point, Israel was a nation divided. If you remember, after David and Solomon, Solomon's son was God's appointed rightful heir to the throne. And yet, he was a scoundrel. He was not someone who could be trusted. He was not someone who was liked. And so 10 of the tribes of Israel decided they were going to find their own king and appoint their own king, Jeroboam, who set up his capital in the northern part of Israel. So we have 10 tribes in the northern part of Israel that are following his lead, and we've got two tribes who stay loyal, even though he's despicable, to the man that God has allowed to be on the throne for a time. And so we have Israel and Judah. And today when we refer to Israel in the story, we're going to be referring to those ten northern tribes. Now those ten northern tribes had a lot of issues. Namely, idolatry. And it started with their first king, Jeroboam. If you're the king of a nation that has just split off, you don't want your constituents going back to the old capital city for fear of their loyalty being swayed to the king who's on the throne there. But Jerusalem lay in that southern part of the kingdom. And Jerusalem obviously was the center of religious worship, and because Israel was really a theocracy at the time, it was the center of political affairs as well. So Jeroboam decided, my people need a place that's the center, that's the focus of their religion and their politics and their everyday life. So he builds another temple. And because he needs an article there of something to worship, he actually has, of all things, a golden calf made and placed there in the temple to keep his people in Israel. Now, as far as they were concerned and what they were told, they weren't worshiping the calf, but it was an image that represented the God of Israel that they were to worship. Only that goes completely counter to what we read in God's commandments, isn't it? No graven images. And he knew why, because Israel was an idolatrous people. And so what Jeroboam did by doing this was bring the people right up to the threshold of idol worship and set back as they crossed the line. And so this is where we find Hosea. This is generations later. It's now one of the great-great-grandsons of Jeroboam who sits on the throne. Or, sorry, no. <laughs> it's... Now Jeroboam II, not a great-great-grandson, you say, what do you mean? God decided to take account of Jeroboam's sin. Jeroboam's descendants make it down to King Ahab. King Ahab is killed along with multiple members of his family so that no descendant of Ahab would be left to take the throne. See, God made sure that his judgment was enacted. Only who, who became king, Jehu, who was responsible for that assassination, his great-great-grandchild, Jeroboam II, named after the very man who started the dynasty that he ended, sits on the throne. We haven't come very far in Israel. Nothing's really changed. See, the family name is different Day-to-day life is the same. So, as Hosea is called by God, this, this is the situation that he's in. This is where he's living. This is the people among whom he's living. And Hosea is not a known name. 
This isn't someone that the people already recognize. This isn't someone who's already been preaching. This isn't someone who has already been picked by God. Someone like a Jeremiah that people were used to nagging them about their sin and turning back to God all the time. No, Hosea is a complete unknown. And yet, God calls him to do something completely and totally different. Something that is going to change the course of his life, but hopefully in doing so, change the course of Israel's future. So let's begin then in verse 2 with Hosea and see exactly what it is that God has called him to. It says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry. Isaiah, go and marry a prostitute. That's what I want you to do. And many people balk at this. Why would God do such a thing? Why would God call Hosea to marry a prostitute? Doesn't this violate some sort of law? There has to be something in there about not marrying a prostitute. There is, but it only applies to Levitical priests. God was not calling his prophet to do something that was in violation of his own law. God would not call us to violate his law. And many people have an issue and say, well, how could God call a prophet to marry a prostitute? Doesn't that do something and say something about God's holiness and his perfection? Why would he have his prophet do such a thing? Surely what he meant was, Hosea, go and marry a woman that I know her heart, and I know in the future that she'll become a prostitute. That, that's, that's her heart, that's her attitude, that's the type of person she is. She hasn't enacted that yet, but that's where she's headed, and that's who she'll be. And people try to excuse that away and try to make that what God is saying because they want to protect God's holiness, and I respect that. But there is nothing here except Hosea marry a prostitute, not a woman who will be. Why would God call him to that? Remember, God is painting a picture through the life of Hosea about his relationship with Israel. Where did God's relationship with Israel begin? We go back to the book of Genesis, we find Abram. Now, this is the same man who becomes Abraham. God changes his name, but before he's Abraham, he's Abram. He's Abram who's living in Ur, which is where his family lives, his father and his forefathers before him. And in Ur, they loved to look at the stars, but they weren't astronomers, they were astrologers. They worshiped the heavens. They worshiped the things that they could see in the heavens. They relied on the heavens to explain what was going to happen and what they should be doing in their life. And you say, well, surely that didn't apply to Abraham and his family. God called him because he was faithful among this type of people. But that is not what we see in the book of Joshua chapter 24. It says, for in ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor. And they served other gods. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river, talking about Ur, and in Egypt. See, God's beginnings with Israel was calling them out of their sin, calling them out of idolatry. He didn't call a nation that was faithful to him. He didn't call a nation that was without sin. He didn't call a nation based on their merit and what they had already done for him. And then they later went awry. No, he finds a family. He finds a man 
living among a pagan, idolatrous nation, and he calls him out to follow him, period. That's the beginning of Israel's history with God. It's this same man, this same Abram, that God called out of idolatry in Ur that he would make a covenant with, saying that out of his seed, out of his descendants, he would raise up for himself a nation that would be his priest among the people. God did not call Israel because of who they already were. God simply called Israel and told them what he planned for them to be. And it was the same as the multitude that came out of Egypt. Abraham was called out of idolatry, but we just saw in Joshua that as the Israelites came out of captivity, out of slavery in Egypt, and God was beginning to take them into the promised land, they were trying to bring these gods of Egypt and these gods of their forefathers along with them. And throughout the wilderness journey, we see as God is bringing them into the promised land, time and time and time and time again, he has to address the issue of idolatry. There they stood before Mount Sinai, seeing the mountain on fire and not consumed, hearing the voice of God that sounded like trumpets and thunderings and roaring waters. There a mountain standing before them that they couldn't even walk up on because God said his presence and his holiness there would cause them to die. As that is going on, as Moses is on the mountain, as God is speaking, as God is giving his law, what are they doing? Constructing an idol. They're never but just a step away from idolatry. And this is something that God is dealing with them with all throughout. God didn't call them because of who they were. He called them because of what they were going to be. And so it's not removed from God to tell his prophet, in this story that I'm going to tell, in this illustration that I'm going to paint, I want you to start the same way that I did. Find a woman who is a product of and a willing participant in sin. Everything about her lifestyle is sin. And I want you to go and I want you to make her your wife. Bring her out of her sin into a covenant relationship, a covenant marriage with you. The same as I did with Israel. So why would God do it? Well, how did he start his relationship with us? God calls us out of our sin. The Bible is very clear. There are none righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says, in sin we were conceived. In sin, our mother brought us forth into this world. God calls each and every one of us out of sin. The same as Hosea called Gomer out of her prostitution. But our story goes on because he doesn't stop there with just taking a wife of prostitution. He goes on in verse 2 and says, Have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dablion, and she conceived and bore him a son. So Hosea is being faithful to be fruitful and multiply, to raise up children with this woman, just as God has instructed him to. Notice at the very end of this verse 3 that it says she bore him a son. This is the only time that we'll see this phrase. There are more children to come, but this is the only child that we're told in Scripture that is actually Hosea's child. And what's interesting is 
what God is going to do with these children and what they represent, what they signify. Because God has a very special purpose for this child. Go on in verse 4 and and look at what he says about this child. The Lord said, Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Hmm. Remember here just a minute ago when we talked about how Israel started. We talked about Jeroboam and how he led the people into idolatry, and we said it was his great, 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 wait, no, it wasn't his great, great, great grandson, right? It was Jehu's great, great, great grandson who was sitting on the throne, Jeroboam too. Where did that take place? Where did Jehu strike down King Ahab and his descendants? Where did God punish the sin of idolatry and pagan worship in King Ahab and in the nation of Israel? Where did he allow Jehu to take the throne in his zeal to rid Israel of such a king? It was there in the valley of Jezreel. Only with Jehu and his lineage, nothing changed. And so now God says in the very place where Jehu executed my judgment on idolatry, I'm getting ready to execute judgment again on the persistent idolatry. That thing that has not changed. And so in this first child, God says judgment is coming. And it's going to be reminiscent of the way it worked before. Only this time, instead of simply breaking the lineage of a king who led the people into idolatry, I'm going to break the backs of the people who persist and stay in idolatry. And it's here in the valley of Jezreel that the Israelites would fight against the Assyrians as they came in to take the nation. It's here in the valley of Jezreel that Assyria would win a huge victory, and take captive after captive after captive away. This is the phrase that we we hear when we refer to these ten northern tribes as the ten lost tribes of Israel. It's because they were displaced by the Assyrians exactly as God said they would. The interesting thing here is that this name Jezreel has a very significant meaning. It means to scatter. And you think, well, they came in and took the people away and dispersed them all throughout the Assyrian kingdom. So yeah, God scattered them. But that's just the double entendre. This this phrase, scatter, actually is an agricultural term. It's the word that's used as a farmer went and planted seed and he would scatter the seed in the fields. It was a term of hope. Jezreel was a valley that was the breadbasket of Israel. It's the place where God provided for them. So they had plenty to eat. It's a place where God had intended to sow his people, his nation, that he had promised to Abraham and raise them up as a countless multitude. It's also the nation where God intended to raise up his seed that was promised in Genesis 3, the coming Messiah. And yet God says here in the valley of Jezreel, instead of sowing blessings to you, scattering my seed, 
you're going to be scattered as a nation because of your unfaithfulness to me. Shortly after Jeroboam dies and his son takes the throne, only to be assassinated six months later. That started a period of instability and chaos and infighting within the nation of Israel and made them easy pickings for Assyria as they came in to take over. But there's another child. As we go on in verse 6, or sorry, 4, says she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her. Now notice what's missing here in this phrase. It doesn't say she conceived and bore him a daughter. You see, this wife, Gomer, that God has told Hosea to go and call out of prostitution and betroth and bring in and make a covenant relationship with her, bring her into his home and begin a family to live faithfully and deal faithfully with her. This same woman who was taken out of that situation has now found her way back. She now has a daughter. And it doesn't appear that it's Hosea's. And God says, I want you to name her Lo-Ruhamah. And here is the meaning. It says, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. That name means no mercy. How would you like to have that name growing up? There's a question about who your father is, and your father names you no compassion, no mercy. There's no love, no loving kindness. That would be a stigma that you would carry with you for your entire life. It would be a reason to make everyone that you met, all the other people at the marketplace, whisper and wonder what was going on with you and what that situation was like at home. And God says, I want you to name her no mercy. He says, there would no longer be compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. He says, whenever the enemy comes, he's referring to what's going to happen with the Assyrians. He said, there's no mercy. See, Israel's been used to this cycle before where they delve into idolatry and they forget their God and they turn from him and live however they want to live. And when they see judgment coming, when the fire starts to get hot, what do they do? They realize their situation. They realize their sin. They cry out to God. They repent. They turn to him. And God sends a deliverer who comes and rescues them from the enemy. And God says, not this time. Not this time. This time judgment is coming and there will be no mercy. Consequently, the same Assyrians that took the northern part, Israel, into captivity and led them away, marched on Jerusalem. Only whenever they got there and the people in the city realized that they were outnumbered, they began to cry out to their God whom they remained faithful to. They begin to seek his face and pray to him about what they should do to be delivered. And God says, hold tight. You see, the Assyrian army had camped all around Jerusalem. Their plan was to starve them out, cut off their supplies until they just gave up or they were easy to just take over. Only while they were encamped, as the people in Jerusalem began to seek God, God that night sends his death angel through the camp of the Assyrians and wiped out over 100,000 overnight. And the Assyrian army turned and went back home. 
God delivered Judah not by bow and chariot and horsemen, but he delivered. They brought him glory by recognizing who he was, and he glorified himself in their situation. But with Israel, who had turned to idols, who had prostituted herself with these other gods, there was no mercy. But that's not the only child. There's one more. It says, when she had weaned Lo-Ramah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. There's no question. Gomer has prostituted herself again and this child is not Hosea's. And God says, name him, not mine. Now, this is not God's declaration of divorce with the nation of Israel. The Bible tells us very plainly God hates divorce. When God makes a covenant, he intends to keep it. This is a statement of where Israel is living. This is a statement of the reality of Hosea and Gomer's relationship. Hosea has not divorced his wife. They are still legally married. The marriage certificate is still on the wall, and Hosea is still wearing his ring. But as far as Gomer is concerned, as far as Israel is living... She's not married. She's not tied down. She can do whatever she wants to do. She has no husband. That's practically where she's at. I wonder if sometimes we find ourselves as the bride of Christ, but practically living as if we're single. And God is pointing out this truth to Israel as he names these children This is where you've gone. This is how it's progressed. Not only is judgment on the doorstep, but you continue. So not only will I withhold my mercy, but you continue to the point where now you are not my people. And these children are the products of their mother's sin, but they're the consequences and judgments of Israel's sin. They're the consequences and judgments of where Israel had found themselves because of their idolatry, their prostitution, their unfaithfulness. But it's here that we begin to see the heart of God. And we're going to come back to verses 10 and 11 in a few moments. But understand this, consequences and judgments are meant to rebuke and correct. They're not merely punitive. God is not saying these things to Israel. He's not telling her what's to come as a means of pouring out his wrath and getting them ready for that. No, he's telling them what's to come in order to get them to correct their behavior. And we see that as we begin to get into chapter 2. Notice what these children are to do and the plea that's made there to these children in verse 2. It says, contend with your mother. Contend, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. In other words, that's how she's living. And let her put away her harlotry from her face. Let her see these children. Let her see these consequences. Let her see these judgments and the things that are coming. And let her forsake her ways. Let her change her course of action. Let her get herself right in this relationship and begin living as my wife. Because God is trying to correct, he's trying to rebuke, he's trying to bring them back. But why? Why now? Why is he taking this on? Why is it such a a big issue now? Didn't he call her out of prostitution and still marry her? 
Yes, but think about this. Her unfaithfulness, he relates to the idolatry. The fact that she's back there. God called Israel out of idolatry. At that point, it wasn't adultery. At that point, it wasn't unfaithfulness. At that point, she was just an idolater, a pagan, worshiping false gods, doing what you do when you worship false gods. Baal was seen as the god of the heavens. And during a time of drought, it, of course, would bring famine. So, so how do you get rain? How do you get food again? You begin to pray to the God of the heavens to bring rain. You begin to do fertility rites and fertility rituals. And part of these fertility rituals and fertility rites to bring rain and to get the ground to produce were these pagan ritualistic prostitution ceremonies. Very literally, in this religious practice, prostitution and idolatry were linked And this is who Gomer was before. But at that point, it wasn't adultery because she was not married. You see, now things have changed. She's married Hosea. She's his wife. This is more now than just pagan practices and pagans being pagans. This is now adultery. This is now something different. God didn't hold it against Abram. That he was an idolater, an astrologer, worshiping false gods in the heavens, worshiping creation more than the creator before he called him out of Ur. But once he calls him out of Ur and Abraham follows and comes and enters into a covenant with God to be the father of his people who will be called by his name, turning back to the way he used to do things now is adultery. And that's where Israel finds herself. She's still doing the same old things, only now she should know better. Only now it's personal. Only now God and his relationship with her is involved. And so God begins to deal with her. But the question is, is why does she return? You see, if God's going to deal with her idolatry, if God's going to deal with this adultery and her leaving and running back to these other lovers, why would she do that? He's going to have to deal with these reasons. Well, maybe she was just bored. I mean, here she was before living this lifestyle where she went around and something was different every night. A different guy, a different situation, a different scenario. Maybe it was all of these fancy gifts and the different things that they would bring as the way they would pay for her services and the things that they would afford her. Surely this lifestyle had some trappings of being extravagant and exciting. But now she's a housewife. To someone who is of no report, nothing special. Someone that we don't have any reason to believe that can afford her any types of luxuries or anything exciting. Maybe she's bored. Or or maybe, maybe she felt as though Hosea wasn't meeting her needs. He he just couldn't give her the lifestyle that she hoped for. He, He couldn't get her all the pretty things, all the nice things that she got when she was in this other lifestyle. Maybe he didn't dote on her and constantly compliment her and say the things that he wanted her to hear. Things that... They didn't mean, but at least they said them and they made her feel good. Maybe it's the very reasons that we are unfaithful to God. You say, we're unfaithful? Yeah, for the same reasons. God, I remember what it was like before I gave my life to you. Man, I used to run around with my buddies and God on weekends and we'd do this and we'd do that. Man, it was exciting. It was thrilling. 
And now they don't do any of that kind of stuff. Haven't done any of that in a long time. But see, what we're doing is we're romanticizing the past. We, we think about that thrill and we think about that excitement, but we forget about all the heartache and all the problems and all the consequences and all the things that we had to deal with on the side. We only remember them as the glory days. And now we're living for God and we're doing this and we're trying to be a good husband and we're trying to be a good dad and we're doing these things that we know we're supposed to do. And you know what, man, I just I miss it. I'd, I'd love to just have a weekend again where me and my buddies went up to the cabin. and man, we're... But do you remember all the stuff that actually did happen at the cabin? But see, we're bored. We think we are. And if we're bored, it's because we're not realizing the full life that God has for us in living with him. We're not getting out of the box and out of our comfort zone and doing the big, adventurous, exciting things that he's calling us to do for his kingdom. We're staying safe. We're sitting in our pew, not rocking the boat. So we cheat, and we go back to the former things. Or, or maybe we feel that God's not really meeting our needs. You know what? God's provided a house over our head, but you know what? I'd really like to be living in a better zip code and a bigger house. And right now, it's just looking like God's plan's not affording that to me. So, God, I love you and all, but right now, I'm going to pursue my plan and what I want. We cheat on God. See, if we're only 90% faithful, we're not faithful. If we're only giving God 90% of our life and 90% of our decisions, we're not faithful. Faithful is 100%. And maybe we're 100% physically faithful, but you know what? There's, there's those emotional affairs. There's fantasies, you know, that we replay. And we cheat on God with our heart and our mind. And we're not faithful there. Those things that we continue to think about, those things that we continue to dwell on, those things that we do when we think nobody else knows about it at all, those attitudes that we continue to harbor in our heart but we would never say and never vocalize, we're not being faithful to God. And God takes it very seriously. In fact, if you look in the Old Testament, adultery and idolatry were both capital offenses. Both of them were punishable by death. God is very serious about them. Very serious. And we see as he continues what he says he's going to do and how he's going to deal with the unfaithfulness of his wife. And this is where we kind of get into this director's cut. He's no longer speaking through Hosea and telling him what to do and how to proceed. He begins to give us commentary on how he's going to handle it. And we don't pick up with what Hosea has to do until a little bit later. God says, I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day she was first born. I will also make her like a wilderness and make her like a desert land to slay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children because they are children of harlotry. God says, I'm stripping everything away and laying her bare. She's going to be exposed for who she is and what she is in front of everyone because she's refusing to see it herself. Maybe whenever it's made a public spectacle, she'll see. And as far as no compassion on her children, remember her children were the consequences and the judgments. God says they're going to carry through. I'm not going to spare them. They're in place. They're intact. They're going to carry on. Why? Because she has an unfaithful heart. God says, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to deal with it. We're going to get to the heart of the problem. So what does the heart of unfaithfulness look like? Well, first of all, we see that it's ungrateful. 
It's ungrateful. Look in verses 5 and 8 there in chapter 2. It says, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. Notice what she says. I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. She's giving credit to those men that she's chasing after for being the ones who are providing for her and giving her the things that she needs. She goes on and eight. He says, For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished her with silver and gold, which they, she and her lovers, used for Baal. Here's what God is saying. I brought her home the pretty dress. I brought her home the perfume. I brought her home the makeup. I brought her home the fancy jewelry. I'm the one that kept her well fed. I'm the one that kept her safe and sheltered. I'm the one that kept her from the fields and kept her skin all nice and dewy because she wasn't out in the hot sun toiling away. I'm the one who did all of those things. And what did she do? She got all dressed up and all made up and all perfumed and all fancy. And she used those things to go out and chase after and entice her lovers. And she gave them credit for everything she had. Because those little tokens that they would give her and those little things they would give her for her services, those little baubles and those little trinkets that they would give, she thinks that is what's sustaining her. And they're taking all of this, and what are they doing with it? All of the blessings that I'm giving to her, They're turning and they're worshiping the Baals. They're taking the blessings that I've poured out on her to bring me glory and giving glory to false gods. She's ungrateful. She doesn't realize where her blessings are coming from. She doesn't realize who's providing for her. She's giving credit where credit isn't due. The heart of unfaithfulness is ungrateful. But the heart of unfaithfulness is also selfish. It's also selfish. Look at verse 11. It says, I'll put an end to all of her gaiety, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all of her festal assemblies. You know what she's doing? She's a Jewess. She's living in Israel. They're still continuing with all of their religious holidays and religious festivals and religious feasts and religious this and that, all of these things that are fun, right? We're we're having the Christmas services and the candlelight services, and we've got the big egg hunt for Easter this year, and we're getting together to have dinner here, and we're celebrating this holiday and that holiday, and we're, we're doing it up big. And all that stuff is fun, and it's great, and we love to celebrate But she's living for and worshiping the false gods and enjoying the mirth and the merriment and the festivities of worshiping the one true God. She's not showing up for festivals. She's not showing up for the feasts. She's not showing up for the Sabbath celebrations to worship God. She's showing up because it does something for her. It makes her feel good. It gives her a chance to show off. It gives her a chance to meet more men. It gives her a chance to relax and let go and cut loose and have some fun. And after all, that's what God is for, isn't it? Our pleasure and our fun. See, She's selfish. She's thinking about her and that's it. And God says that is the heart of unfaithfulness. That's the heart. And God would rather have no worship than false worship. 
That's why he says in 11, I'm going to take it away. I'm taking away her joy. I'm taking away her merriment. I'm taking away all of these festivals. I'm stripping them all from her. To strip away that selfishness. To take away occasion for that. Because he would rather have no worship than false worship. And yet, we look at the way we worship and the way we live and the way we treat God. Are are we participating in false worship? Are are we enjoying the things that God has blessed us for ourselves and what they can bring to us and forgetting to commemorate what they're actually for? It's kind of like bringing your lover to your anniversary dinner with your spouse. We would never think to do that. And yet, we chase after all of these other things in the world. And we try to bring them in and make them compatible with the way that we're saying we're living for God. What about the heart of God in this? We've seen the heart of Gomer. What about Hosea's heart? The heart of God as he represents God in this situation. When we look at this gracious, holy heart, we see that God intends to frustrate what it is she's doing. As we look back there in chapter 2, he says in verse 6, I'm going to hedge up her way with thorns and build a wall against her so she can't find her path. She'll pursue her lovers, but she won't be able to overtake them. She'll seek them, but she won't find them. God says she's going to continue to run, and I'm not going to stop her, but what I am going to do is this. I'm going to make sure she doesn't enjoy the fruits of her labor. I'm going to make sure that her way doesn't prosper so that she's going to lose the joy and the merriment in what it is that she's doing. It's suddenly going to become unfulfilling and unsatisfying. Then he says, I'm going to withhold. I'm going to withhold. He says, all of those things that I was giving her that she was being ungrateful for, that she was taking out and pursuing her lovers with and using in her worship of Baal, I'm going to withhold all of those things. There's going to be no more food. There's going to be no more clothing. There's going to be no more makeup, no more perfume, none of these things. I'm withholding them all. And when I withhold them all, she's going to realize that it wasn't her lovers who were giving them to her. It wasn't those false gods and those dreams and those ideas and the things that the world puts out there for us to pursue that are giving her her happiness in these things. Those things are coming from me. But then he goes on and he says he's going to take Those things that she does have, he's going to take them away. And he's going to make sure, it's not that they're going to disappear, but she's not going to be able to participate. Look at verse 12. He says, I'll destroy her vines and fig trees, which she says, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I'll make them a forest, and the beast of the field will devour them. He's going to take away anything that she's profiting from these relationships. Then he goes on and he says in verse 13, I'll punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them. There will be punishment. But why? Why all of this? There is a reason. If you remember, all of the consequences, all of the judgments were used for correction and restoration. And that's what we see with a gracious holy heart. It restores. Look at beginning in verse 14. As God starts talking about the I wills. He's speaking of the certainty of what's going to happen. The certainty of what he's going to do. He's made this promise to Israel. He's made this promise as far back as Abraham. That he was going to have a people that was his people. And he fully intends to do that. He says, therefore, I will allure her. He's not going to coerce her. He's not going to force her to come. No, he's going to woo her. 
back to himself. But what's interesting is what he says. I'm going to allure her into the wilderness, away from her lovers, away from temptation, out of harm's way, so that she begin to focus on me again, and I can begin to pour out my love and my blessings on her. He says, I'm going to lure her away. Allure her back in, woo her back into this relationship with me. And what's interesting with this idea of wilderness is this ties exactly into where we've been in our study in the book of Revelation. You see, all of these things up to this point have been things that God has already done for Israel and where they find themselves now. But now we're beginning to look into the future and what God has in store for Israel. You see, if we look in Revelation chapter 12, we see this passage. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman, this is speaking of Israel, who gave birth to the male child, Jesus Christ. But two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, Israel, so that she could fly into the wilderness, into her place where she was nourished for a time times and half a time from the presence of the serpent, the Antichrist. Three and a half years, a time, times, and half a time. See, during the tribulation, whenever persecution reaches its pinnacle against Israel, and the Antichrist comes pursuing hot and heavy after her, God says he's prepared a place in the wilderness for her to flee, a place in the mountains where she'll be able to take refuge. And what does God say he's going to do? This wife who's still living in prostitution and adultery, he's going to woo her back and bring her to the wilderness where they can purify their relationship with each other. And he can woo her back to himself. But then he says, this heart of graciousness is going to give and restore. He says, there in the valley of Jezreel, where her strength, her back was broken, and he took the kingdom from her. He says, this valley is going to be planted again. He's going to give back and renew and restore what he had taken from her. It was always his intention for her to have it, but it was blinding her to where it was coming from. It was blinding her to who was responsible for her blessings. And so he takes it away and makes her miss it. And now that he has her out there for himself, he's going to give it back so that she'll recognize where it's coming from. Then he says he's going to take away, he says he's going to take away the names of the Baals and any remembrance of this Baal worship that she had. It's interesting because the word that she was using, that Gomer was using for Hosea, her husband, was Bali. God says, they're confusing me. I'm just another God. I'm the same as the Baals that she's worshiping. That term meant master. And she was referring to her husband as my master. And he says, no longer will you call me my master. I'm taking that relationship, that type of relating between husband and wife that you are so confused by, that's been implanted in there by the world. I'm taking that away. I'm not your master. He says, but you'll call me Ishi, my husband. My love, the one that I'm in covenant with to share my life. Because he's going to renew and change what this relationship is. And then he goes on, he says, I'm going to subdue the land around her. 
I'm going to bring peace to the chaos. Can you imagine what it was like for her? She thought it was great, all the trappings of elegance and luxury and excitement. But can you imagine the lifestyle she was living? Not knowing where she was going to be one night to the next. Or who was going to be there. Or how he was going to be. And how he was going to treat her. and what the, He says, I'm going to bring peace. I'm going to subdue the land. I'm going to bring peace and calm to this relationship and to your life. Make stability. Then he goes on and he says, I'm going to betroth her. They were already married legally. And yet he says, I'm going to bring you back in. You were never really in this covenant with me. I'm going to bring you and betroth you and make you my covenant wife. Never to end. Then he goes on and he says that he's going to hear and respond. He says, when you call out for the things that you're missing, you call out for the things that are lacking, you call out for the things that you're missing in your life, he says, I'll hear and I'll respond and I'll make sure creation responds and provides for you exactly what I intended for it to provide. But then he goes on and he talks about her children. Remember the names of the kids? Jezreel, no mercy, and not my people. Look, look at what he says here at the end of chapter 2. He says, I will sow her for myself in the land. There's Jezreel, right? I will also have compassion on her who had obtained no compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. But notice their response this time. And they will say, you are my God. You see, God is pointing to a day when Israel is going to be restored to him. And this promise that he made to Abraham is going to come full circle and be completed. He will have for himself a people that are dedicated to him, who live for him, that are his priest, that carry his namesake to all the nations. And so as you saw in your outline, this future action Right, What is to come, we see in chapter 3. What, what does he tell Hosea to do? And we'll close with this. He says, Hosea, here's my heartbeat. Now, here's the way it's going to play out in your life. You're going to go out, and you're going to buy back your wife. She's yours. Legally, you could just go and take her. But you're going to go, you're going to buy back your wife. Israel is God's. Yet he came and paid the ultimate price to buy them back. He didn't have to. But was that a heart of gracious love? Only Israel has not responded. And that's what we see in this next little part. He says he's going to bring her in and there's going to be a period of abstinence where she has to live without a temple, without priest, without the ephod, without household idols, without any of these things. That's the time that they're in right now. But after that time, notice what he says in 5. The sons of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they'll come trembling to the Lord and to the goodness in the last days. Gomer's going to come home. There's going to be a period where you're just abiding together in the same house, two ships crossing in the night. But in the end, she's going to come back to you. And you will be her husband, and she will be your wife. 
God's plan is restoration. When we see his plan with Israel, and we see his heart for restoration, we see his heart to take a people that were supposed to be his and became unfaithful to him, and yet he still pursues after them. He still allures them. He still slams doors in their faces so that they can't continue down the path of destruction. But we see him still loving them and wooing them back to himself, ready to provide for them everything that was supposed to be there so that he can have that relationship with them that he desired. We see that heartbeat, and we see his desire for us. A a, a people that even though we have prostituted ourselves and become unfaithful with the things of the world and unfaithful with those around us, unfaithful with the culture, unfaithful with all of these ideas that are introduced into our worlds, when we chase after the things that the world says is important, God's desire is still for us to come back and be faithful to him. Only we're on a little bit different timeline. Because while Israel right now is in this period of abstinence, this period of just abiding in the same home, that's our time. God says today is the day for our salvation. Today is the day for us to come back to him and commit to him and be faithful in this relationship with him. He paid the ultimate price to buy us back. And he's waiting for us to come to him and be faithful. We're going to close today without a formal invitation. But I will say this. If you'd like to talk, find me afterward. I'm going to slip out and meet our guests that have come today. But then I'll be coming back in here. And I'm sure you don't want to come and talk in front of a crowd and have people look and think, oh, I wonder what they're... That's fine, I understand. By that point, people will have left. You'll have me all to yourself. Come find me. Let's talk today. There's no reason for you to leave here still out there living in prostitution when you have a husband who loves you and gave the world for you and wants to restore a relationship with you. Let's take care of that today. Father, we do thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for revealing your heart. And God, I pray that if there's someone here today who doesn't know what it means and hasn't experienced the joy of living in a covenant relationship with you, God, I pray that today's the day they'll come and take care of that. And God, today's the day that they'll come and experience what it means to have a personal, intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. God, help us as we go out, those of us that are believers, to be faithful to you to be careful about what it is we bring into our lives and what it is we associate ourselves with and where it is that we're unfaithful to you. God, help us be 100% faithful. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.